This edition of Paratopia is dedicated to Janine Valet. May she rest in peace. Paratopia, the time is upon us. Ah, uh, yes. If you don't know who Jacques Vallée is, you don't We're- belong here. <laughs> <laughs> Go away. Shoot. Uh, yeah, I mean, his resume is, you know, it's like a scroll that unfurls down the hall to the king's throne. <laughs> yes. Like some cartoon. Uh, you know, and of course, most famously, he was played by uh, Truffaut in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, that character was based on him, the French the French scientist. And, I, I mean, it, it's like kind of superfluous to do an introduction by way of resume, isn't it, on this show? Yes. Yeah. So why don't we not do that? Why don't we yeah. just say the man has written numerous books that transcend and include ufology. Let's put it that way. His work in general, I think, has changed the face of ufology for a great many people. I mean, me for one. Um uh, and I think, I mean, what kind of impact has his work had on you, Jaron, and the way you you view this stuff? I would I would put him up there, um, you know, in my top. Well, I mean, him and Streber, I think, are probably the two most impactful mm-hmm. on my way of thinking about this. Uh, even in terms of on in my own life, but also right. in terms of dispelling, um, well, him more so than Streber, dispelling some of the myths of ufology um, and sort yeah. of calling out. Things that that don't jive factually, like military, you know, bases uh, with aliens working in them and handshake deals and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's the simple things of just saying, as he did. Well, if you're going to keep the secret, who's in charge of, uh, who's in charge of the garbage? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> who takes out the trash? Who right. takes out the trash? I mean, little things like that. Um. So on that level, you know, I think he was, um, dare I say, revolutionary or at least a soothsayer. But then also, of course, just in linking all of this stuff back to antiquity, back to fairy Mm -hmm. folklore, uh, back to the days of so-called magical thinking. Right. And of course, his work, Wonders in the Sky, the latest book, is furthering that effort. And I was pleasantly surprised because I didn't realize this was, for all intents and purposes, a sequel to uh, Passport to Magonia. So when I found that out, I was just pleased as punch. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm really amazed uh, by him in the sense that, uh, you know, to come out with Magonia, what he did it was not uh, fashionable, I guess. And to try to make the connections that he did and 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 did, I think, changed my way of looking at this uh, overnight. And I and I think for a lot of other people, he's had that impact on changing the thought process from 
Yeah, I mean, the ETH still being a valid theory and all that, but saying, in, in essence, uh, it doesn't fit. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a bold move and uh, a true move, but a bold one uh, for the time. And uh, and certainly that turned ufology on its ear. And you've got to have uh, um, a lot of admiration for somebody who would care enough about this to work at it and to present something that would turn it on its ear. Um, so I think that's, um, I, th- I think that's why I'm so goddamn nervous. <laughs> Don't be nervous. Yes. It's yes. All, it's all going to be okay. That's right. It will be. You were asking, you know, what his impact is to me. And I think in, in a way, the overall impact is that he is an ambassador of information. <laughs> uh, hmm. and what I mean by that is not just of, different sorts of theories that we might not have heard of, different ways of looking at it outside of the ETH, but also in terms of, for instance, working with NARCAP, working um, with, I think it was NIDS, the uh, the Skinwalker Ranch people, mm-hmm. um, going to Russia and uh, researching with uh, Russian ufologists and scientists. I mean, this man is an international traveler Yes. Um, who gives great information to these folks and takes what he can uh, from it and and it it informs his theories. And I don't see anyone else doing that. If they are, I don't know about it. No, he's definitely a singular breed, I think, when it comes to that, (laughs) at least in the scope of his work. I think that he's uh, amazingly versatile to me. I mean, he studied everything from landing trace cases to abductions to uh, sightings and uh, and across the board, and by the way, has applied um, the scientific you know principles to it um, in the way of investigating these things. I mean, he's very well, shall we say, somewhat harsh on, uh, for instance, the use of hypnosis in abduction research. Uh, something like that, uh, of course, falls in line with this show. Well, you know what's weird about that in in terms of this book, or just noticeable, I should say, other than mm-hmm. outside of weird is that when you have a book like this, which links up the enigma throughout the ages, it makes the function of hypnosis or any sort of memory retrieval superfluous. It's like that whole thing of hypnosis and retrieving missing time and all that uh, sort of presupposes that this is an alien abduction that happened since the 1940s, right? and we've got to get at what these people are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, this thing's been with us for quite a while, and so... <laughs> In the grand scheme of things, um, that's I don't think that's important anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see that. So Jacques did that for me with this book. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, it's it's um, this book is a, a big departure for. I mean, you could look at it as an ancient uh, UFOs type book, but it's really a hell of a lot more than that because it goes into uh, even tangent phenomena that that seem i mean one case we're going to bring up uh, involves apparitions and there's a lot of apparition uh type events associated with ufos uh in this book and again we've said on the show before that the ghost phenomena and the ufo crowd don't really mix and it's unfortunate that they don't because probably a lot could be gained by uh amalgamating data together and seeing what what kind of fits what doesn't you know the the man who has uh an abduction experience then starts to see or have poltergeist experience in his home. I mean, we heard that from Colin in regards to the policeman in the, uh, 
uh, crop circle, seeing the very tall white beings running away. Um, then since that point had been having poltergeist activity, a haunting of sorts. And so that's, that's also touched upon in this book, uh, quite often. So, uh, uh, I think if anything or if anyone can bring <laughs> those two factions together it would be one of Jacques Vallée's books. And, right. uh, and, and that's, that's going to be a big thing. Yeah. I mean, the one thing Jacques Vallée has never done is create outlier data of yeah. an unknown phenomenon, which as we've said time and again is, I think the bane of ufology is that mm-hmm. ufologists and abduction researchers create outlier data of the stuff that, that doesn't jive with their personal view of what's going on. Right. And right. that's tragic, but you know, it, it, it's also, isn't it amazing that Jacques is, I mean, he's not just someone that we're talking up here. He's someone who is, you know, easily the most respected ufologist uh, of Period. our generation. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. and yet, so why isn't it that, that the others are, are not – why is it that the others aren't following his lead as much as you would expect them to? Mm. Uh, and I don't know. It, it's just kind of odd and frustrating to me. But thank goodness we, uh, we still have a Jacques Vallée still functioning in this who hasn't slipped away and decided, you know what? I'm, I'm uh, better than this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, you know, looking back over his career, I think you can – kind of see points where I don't know, I'm going to ask him, you know, did you get bored with this? How do you hang with this so long? How do you keep going? Uh, that That's a hell of a good question, I think, to ask somebody in his position because uh, certainly a lot of people, I'm sure, um, became up in arms with uh, Passport to Mangonia and said, you know, he's drawing these connections. And, I'm, you know, I'm sure it's, on some level it's for some people that was a real slap in the face to their belief system that they concocted around this. And uh, I think like everything else in this, Jerry, I think it, it, it becomes a belief system and an ideology before it becomes about the data. And I think that's something that, that Jacques Vallée has always done is to not make it about a belief system or an ideology. It's been about what are the facts? What is the data that I've got? How can I put this all together in you know, some kind of cohesive read for people that they can understand the point I'm trying to make? Um, and Mangonia was like a, a perfect keystone to that kind of book. Well, I think that's the perfect place to leave it. Here to talk about Wonders in the Sky, co-authored with Chris Abeck, is Dr. Jacques Vallée. Well, Peritopia, wait no longer. Here is the dream guest you've all been waiting for, Dr. Jacques Vallée. Uh, Dr. Vallée, thank you very much for uh, coming on the show. Hey, it's a pleasure. Now, before we get into the minutia of your book and your theories uh, and we start bouncing things off of you, tell us why you came back and did this book in the first place. Well, as you know, 40 years ago, I wrote a book called Passport to Magonia, which uh, began to look at the uh, ancient sightings and the parallels between ancient folklore and what we're, you know, what we're witnessing now with the UFO phenomenon in the last 50 years or so. And um, at the time, uh, I knew I was just scratching the surface. In fact, the book was not well received uh, by either by folklore experts who thought, you know, UFOs were just hallucinations and hoaxes and so on and had nothing to do with anthropology or folklore studies. 
and it was not well received by ufologists who thought everybody knows that UFOs are spacecraft from another planet, and you know they have nothing to do with uh, with elves and uh, leprechauns and uh, Celtic myths and and all of that. So it, it took a while for the for the book to be uh, accepted or, or or recognized. And my well, as you know, when I began studying the UFO phenomenon, I I thought they were spacecraft from another planet because that's the, the most obvious hypothesis that comes to mind. But after a while, you have to to ask when did the phenomenon begin? I mean, if, you, if you're going to do the natural history of a new phenomenon, you need to know when it began. And it, all the UFO books point to Kenneth Arnold, you know, June 1947 as the beginning of flying saucers. But we know that there were similar observations before in the 20th century and in the 19th century. And of course, Charles Fort had pointed to a number of intriguing things long before. But they were not completely documented, and, you know, nobody had really looked at that. It, it seemed the phenomenon had really reappeared, you know, in '47. And in Passport to Magonia, I, I think I was able to show that the phenomenon was much older than that. Well, yeah, it's interesting because I think generally people think of, if they go beyond the 40s, they think of the airships of the 1800s, and then there's sort of this drought until you go back to maybe people's take on the Bible or ancient Egypt or Sumeria yes. or something like that. And I think that this book really pieces together uh, all of the intervening thousands of years. So, Well, and the credit goes to my co-author, who should really be the prime author, Chris Albeck. Chris is uh, a, a, an Englishman who lives in Madrid. He is a philologist. He's a, uh, a student of language and history. Uh, very much a scholar, very precise in, in his uh, studies. And he contacted me and said it was time to revisit the, you know, the, the subject matter of Passport to Magonia and that he had assembled a team of uh, researchers around the world through the Internet. I mean, it's really the Internet that has made this book possible. And uh, that he was assembling the largest collection of pre-Arnold sightings ever assembled. And his first idea was to put everything on the web, uh, because he's very much, you know, of the web generation. And as, as you know from my previous work in, in uh, computer science with, uh, with ARPANET and the Internet, uh, I would be the last person to, be, to discourage this, putting things, information on the web. But I convinced him that a book was important as a milestone, as something that people could refer to at a point in time. And so we started, uh, we merged our databases together. Um, I have never re-edited Passport to Magonia, but I had continued to, to accumulate cases and, uh, and information from people. And so we merged our databases and then we started digging. And that took six years. Nobody got paid. I mean, it's an example of you know, very, very frugal research. Right. And again, uh, what's happened in the last 40 years is, of course, that a lot of museums and newspapers have put their collections online. And you can now search this, which I couldn't do at the time of Passport to Magonia. So the result is uh, this book, Wonders in the Sky. Mm -hmm. uh, and have you found that you're... 
working on this book in particular has changed the way you think about any of this stuff or reconfirmed for you what you were thinking about this phenomena? Well, I, uh, I, I went into it, you know, with a vengeance because I knew, again, in, in Passport to Magonia, I, what I discovered was that I was scratching the surface of an immense, you know, treasure of information, most of which I didn't have access to. And, you know, I couldn't take five years off and go to every museum and every archive of uh, local newspapers and so on. But now, again, through the Internet, we can we can begin to do this. And, yes, it has changed. Well, it has confirmed that there was a lot more material. And, you know, we have uh, we stopped at 500 cases, but there's probably, you know, two or three times more that's available in in archives, especially in countries where we have no, no no easy cultural access, like Japan and China and so on, where some scholars will have to go back to their own libraries and their own museums to 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 find similar material. So there must be a lot more. So we see this book, Chris, Chris and I see this book as a, as a beginning, not not as an end. Let us now turn our attention to that book as we ask Jacques Vallée questions based on passages from Wonders in the Sky. We now turn to the case number 84, The Bright Pearl in the Lake. It takes place around year 1059 in Fangliang, China. Shang Gua, a Chinese scholar of the Song Dynasty, recorded an interesting sighting in chapter 369 of his book, Stories on the Bank of a Stream of Dreams. And the rest of this is in quotes. In the middle of the reign of Emperor Ji Yu at Yangzhou in the Jiangsu province, an enormous pearl was seen, especially in gloomy weather. At first it appeared in the marsh of the Xiangcheng district, passed by the lake of Baixi and disappeared finally in the Xinke Lake. The inhabitants of that region and travelers saw it frequently over a period of 10 years. I have a friend who lives on the edge of the lake. One evening, he looked through the window and saw the luminous pearl near his house. He half opened his door and the light entered, illuminating the room with its brightness. The pearl was round with a gold-colored ring around it. Suddenly, it enlarged considerably and became bigger than a table. In its center, the luminary was white and silvery, and the intensity was such that it could not be looked at straight on. End of quote. The light it emitted even reached trees that were some five kilometers away, and as a result, these cast their shadow on the ground. The faraway sky was all alight. Finally, the round, luminous object began to move at a breathtaking speed, and landed on the water between the waves like a rising sun. As the pearl often made its appearance in the town of Feiliang in Yangzhou, the inhabitants, who had seen it frequently, built a wayside pavilion and named it the Pearl Pavilion. Inquisitive people often came from afar by boat, waiting for a chance to see the unpredictable pearl. In this case, we have an object they're referring to as a pearl, which comes out of the water um, 
goes into houses, grows in size. Pretty, pretty typical uh, UFO hotspot area, as they would say in that in that place. It, to the point where the people of the town actually built a pier, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in reference to the pearl. Now, it was written in there that this was seen, I guess, with some regularity over the course of a decade. Uh, so, in your opinion, as as far as hotspots go, is this still a hotspot in that area? Uh, to see the pearl, how long has it been since that's been sighted? I don't know. There? I'd, I'd love to go there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I don't have much opportunity to to do that. What's remarkable about the, especially the ancient Chinese references, is that of course the you know most most people in the 11th century around the world were illiterate; they couldn't read and write. So the the people who recorded this kind of thing were scholars. They were they were scholars, and being Chinese, uh, they were also poets. So they use very sophisticated language to record what they've seen, and those are the the ones that have come to us. So um, very often, it's of course difficult to to translate. For example, the the, the Chinese, the ancient Chinese, keep speaking of pearls and of dragons. Well, we we don't quite know. How that should be translated? You know, we, we, you find dragons in many different contexts, uh, including uh, later on dragons that have wheels, for example. So, right. I, you know, I didn't know dragons had wheels, and so this is just absolutely fascinating material. Now, this particular case comes from a book called Stories on the Bank of a Stream of Dreams. So you 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 see the the scholarship and the you know the the, the poetry of the of the author but what he records is a um, historic event i don't know that you know china has obviously changed a lot just in the last you know 20 years uh, i i don't have any contact there i don't know whether uh, people in that particular area still are even aware of this particular ancient sighting okay well that that kind of leads me into a tangent question which is a hotspot uh, for UFO activity. And I'm wondering what you see as the reason that any particular location would be a spot for repeated activity. That's a loaded question because it <laughs> leads, of course, to the, as you know, it, it leads to the idea of, uh, you know, are there windows into, you know, a parallel universe or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a wormhole that through which uh, objects appear into our universe um, or, or our part of the galaxy. They come from uh, from a distant star. Um, I don't know. Uh, okay. it, it would be many places, well, at least a few places around the world have been claimed to be hotspots. But when you, when you look at it, I think a skeptic would be, would legitimately say, Look, you know, this may be that you have a lot of, of uh, reports from that particular area because there are active researchers in that area doing doing work. I, I know in, in California, uh, I can point to hotspots around the places where I know there are active researchers uh, who have gathered information from their neighbors. Now, the question is always if I if I 
put a big map of California on my wall and I throw a dart at it and I go to that particular place and I set up shop, you know, for three months, uh, interviewing everybody, in the, you know, within a 20-mile radius of where my, my dart has landed. Am I going to create a hot spot? You know? mm. And I don't know the answer to that. I'm skeptical, for example, of hot spots around military bases or missile sites, simply because those are areas that are heavily guarded and where there are people out at night uh, watching the sky. Although I, I believe you said um, on Coast to Coast that you were trying to recreate a Skinwalker Ranch type scenario. Is that correct? I have done that um, in, in during the 90s. I moved to, um, my wife and I uh, bought a, a place in in Mendocino County, which in, in an area of redwoods, where the sky was actually magnificent. There was no no lights close to us. And I built a small observatory there, and I wanted to see if if we, you know, I did a number of, uh, you could call entropy experiments. If, if you created a discontinuity in terms of information, I, I'm an information scientist, I'm not really a physicist, uh, but I wanted to see whether or, uh, creating an, an information discontinuity would um, sort of attract the phenomenon or would enhance observations of the phenomenon, and it it wasn't conclusive. There were there were cases, there were sightings close to where we were. We had a 200 acre uh, ranch, um, and uh, we spent a lot of time there. And again, I had you know an observatory there with recording equipment and so on. I couldn't say that it was successful. We had a few incidents of uh, of lights we couldn't explain on, on the ranch, and we had uh, cases in the vicinity, but it certainly was not a, a hotspot. Did you have uh, any specifics about the layout of the land? And, you know, in paranormal world, we always hear about uh, running water or high-power, you know, lines or limestone, that sort of thing. Did you sort of build these things up around to try to attract? Uh, no, there was, uh, but it it was, you know, Mendocino County is, is really a paradise. It's it's uh, extremely beautiful. We were in the middle of uh, old, uh, old growth redwood that we had a lot of trouble preserving from the neighbors who wanted to, you know, to, to, to cut them. Uh, but we, we preserved it. There were two creeks running through the property. Uh, and it was, you know, just the ideal place for for the phenomenon to be attracted to. But it uh, it, it really didn't work as you know as as a hotspot. Okay. Um... We enjoyed living there, by the way. <laughs> so it, was, it wasn't a complete loss. <laughs> but uh, the uh, that particular experiment, I, I would say, didn't work. We now turn to case number one six four. Vehicle interference, light beings, free upper chariot. A man named Colongius, who was driving a cart across a fork in a shallow river, tried in vain to free it when it became stuck. Having prayed fervently, he saw a being in a blinding light coming from the east, accompanied by twelve other figures. He took them to be the Virgin Mary and the Apostles. They stepped on thirteen stones local people used to cross the river and disappeared in the west. As they vanished, Colonius found that his cart was free from the mud. 
an investigation by the Bishop of Rhodes led to the founding of the Chapel of the Thirteen Stones on July 1st, 1510. When I read this, I started thinking about the nature of miracles and how we're always looking at miracles to try to say, look, this is real. You know, the, the miraculous has happened. Uh, therefore, you know, God is real or what, whatever you want to put on that. But I got to thinking, are we maybe looking at miracles the wrong way? When you look at something like this, isn't the real story that there's no cause and effect and so that perhaps – uh, well, the, laws of that, physics would be more miraculous than than breaking them. Well, we uh, you know we have to be careful when we talk about the laws of physics because we don't know all the laws of physics. We know a few laws of physics, but uh, they are they are not really laws. I mean, they, they are the best interpretation of what we've observed so far that we can think of. But um, they are subject to review. I mean, that's what science does. I, I think what's remarkable in these cases, not so much that it's a miracle, it's that it's impossible. You know, uh, uh, Jeff Kripal, Dr. Kripal of uh, Rice uh, University, has published a, an interesting book recently called Authors of the Impossible, where he talks about parapsychology and UFOs. It's a University of Chicago uh, publication. And he goes, you know, he goes into into that. I mean, why, what what can we do as as scientists or as academic researchers when we're faced with the impossible? And calling it a miracle, of course, is a, uh, is a cop out because uh, you know it it stops the discussion, it stops the research. Um, it's a little bit like you know the Air Force calling something unidentified when they have absolutely no no explanation for what was reported to them. Right. Uh, it's uh, you know it's a joke. I think the impossible is is different because impossible is something you can research. It's a little bit like you know, infinity in mathematics. Uh, you cannot do it with ordinary mathematics, but you can build mathematics of infinity. And uh, you can also, I think, build a, a physics of the impossible. Now, what's what's interesting in this particular case is that, of course, in modern UFO studies, we have a number of cases where a car was stopped on the road, and then uh, the people wonder why their their car won't start, and then a UFO is is seen, you know, arriving uh, close to the car. So. People have done all kinds of hypotheses and tests and experiments to see how you can stop a car with, I don't know, you know, electromagnetic beams and so on. The military has done all kinds of studies of that, inspired by UFO cases, by the way. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. And the problem is that you have the same thing with bicycles and horses that are suddenly stopped. And, of course, people who are suddenly um, apparently not paralyzed, but unable to go through an invisible barrier, or sometimes attracted by uh, an invisible beam of some sort. So saying that this is just electromagnetic doesn't really do it. I mean, you don't stop a horse with an electromagnetic beam. So I was fascinated with this particular case because here you have a chariot in the 16th century being frozen and then being uh, freed up by beings of light that come over the, the river where 
this uh, this uh, poor peasant is uh, stuck. And that's why I called it, you know, vehicle interference. Uh, it's not really interference. It's uh, it's just impossible. Well, what does it mean to you as a scientist when you're confronted by the impossible? Uh, you know, presumably you're trying to discover um, or or make sense of reality. Uh, and so when you come across something that just cancels that out, is, is that frustrating or is that wonderful well, or what? I can't speak for... Um, I work a lot in, in my work now with uh, medical researchers, and of course they are confronted with the impossible all the time. And uh, very often the the impossible is, I mean, they, they, they say, you know, medicine is not a science, it's an art, and it's an art because you, you deal with human, you know, organisms that sometimes do things that are different from what, what the... Uh, the, the research has shown before. Uh, in physics, of course, the, the physicists have a big problem with things that are impossible. But remember, as an information scientist, I, I, I have a lot more freedom. So what I tend to look at is um, what are the channels of the, of the, the information? Under what conditions does it present itself? Is there a pattern? Are there more cases like it? Is there more? If you have one thing that's impossible, you know, it's very difficult to do anything about it. But if you can find 10, 20, or, you know, in this case, 500 uh, impossible things, then you can begin to, and that's what we, we did in this book, we, you can begin to look for patterns. And patterns are the key to uh, new knowledge. So, again, I think uh, as an information scientist, I'm not too worried about this. There are, of course, things that are impossible, even in mathematics. And what you do in mathematics is uh, you, you don't try to resolve the impossibility at, at its own level. You, you go up a level and you try to build a, a construct that embraces both the possible and the impossible together. And that's how you, 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 know, you go up in levels of abstraction and then you can say something about it. And I think that's probably what we need to do with UFOs, because just staring at it uh, as a spacecraft really doesn't do it. And we, in the last 20 years, we've moved away from the idea that these were simply, in quotes, spacecraft. And yet the, the methodology hasn't changed. I mean, people are still looking at, you know, what's the propulsion system, what's the... And, you know, it's all, all well and good, but it it doesn't deal with the with the real problem as far as I'm concerned. Well, actually, on that note, do you see uh, that as Newtonian physics and the popular mind gives way to quantum physics, that actually the story is changing from aliens to interdimensional aliens? Well, you know, Newtonian physics hasn't uh, been replaced by quantum physics. It has been replaced by general relativity. And general relativity uh, is in contradiction with uh, quantum physics. Uh, when it comes to the nature of gravity. So to be a physicist today, you have to believe two completely opposite things, uh, which is, you know, I guess, definition of insanity. But, but in, in science, uh, it's, um, it's acceptable. And something will emerge from that uh, that will transcend uh, uh, both of them. It's 
and again, I'm not a physicist. I'm, I'm very encouraged by um, the, the position taken by uh, a number of physicists these days, like uh, uh, Dr. Michio, Michio Kaku, uh, who you know has has spoken about uh, other dimensions and uh, you know, the physics beyond Einstein and so on, and has had the courage to to um, speak openly about the fact that the UFO phenomenon could give us an insight, maybe into structures that have more than four dimensions. Now we turn to case number 88. Drutskia and Polatskia in the Ukraine, first reference to the Devil's Hunt. A common theme in ancient folklore refers to mysterious sounds in the sky, reminding terrified people of the passage of dozens of men on horseback, riding at full speed with their dogs and their servants, leaving enormous destruction behind. In this particular account, the phenomenon first appeared in Drutskia as a great sign, quote, like a very large circle in the middle of the sky, unquote. That summer, the weather was very dry with numerous forest fires and many deaths. In Polatskia, people heard great noises in the night, seemingly of devils galloping along the streets. Later, they manifested during the day on horseback but the only visible part was the hooves of their horses. Another version of the text, Radswills, suggests that the people of Polatskia are devoured by the dead, showing ambiguity between the deceased and demons. It is related in the Provetsk Vermenya Let, usually referred to as Nestor's Chronicle or the Chronicle of Bygone Years. The following text was extracted by Janus Delianus from the Laurentian Codex, which includes the oldest version of the Provest Vermania Let. The text reads, Year 6600, note, since the creation of the world in 5500 BC. This year there was a very peculiar prodigy in Polyetska. At night a great noise was heard in the street. Demons ran like men, and if someone went out of his house, he was hurt right away by the invisible demon with a deadly wound. No one dared to leave his house. Then the demons manifested themselves on horses in plain day. They could not be seen themselves, but only the hooves of their horses. They also hurt people in Polyatska and in the neighborhood. So it was said. There are ghosts killing citizens in Polyatska. These apparitions began in Drutskia. Around the time a sign appeared in the heavens, a great circle was seen in the middle of the sky. I found this one particularly interesting, at least uh, from what we've talked about on this show in the past. We've got an object in the sky formed as a circle. Uh, however, what seems to be more prevalent in the case is apparitions of uh, men on horseback. However, only in the daytime do they see that these things on horseback, the only thing visible is the hooves of the horses. Uh, on this show, over the course of the past, I'd say two years, we've seen and heard a lot of accounts that seem to have some sort of connection between the UFO and what would be labeled as ghost phenomena. Now, aside that they're perceived by human beings, uh, is there, in your opinion, a definitive connection between those two phenomena? 
I, I want to answer carefully because th this touches on some some research I've I've been doing very recently. Uh, uh, ten days ago, um, I was in the uh, in Utah with uh, Professor Salisbury. Frank Salisbury wrote a, a book in the 70s called the uh, uh, Utah UFO Display, which was talking about about a hotspot, you know, in the Utah Basin. And I had uh, gone back in in the um, 80s uh, back to to that that place to interview people and to to meet with researchers there, and I just went back there you know, a week ago with uh, Dr. Salisbury. That's an example of of an area where you do have exactly the same thing. You have um, UFO phenomena, uh, abundance of UFO phenomena, most of them dating back to the, the early 70s or mid-70s. Not a lot of objects described as physical objects, I don't know, the typical, quote, spacecraft UFO, but a lot of light phenomena, orbs and uh, other very evanescent light phenomena behaving in very, very strange ways and um, very strange entities, very strange beings. So, uh, of course, we've been, that's exactly the question that we, uh, we are struggling with when I review the notes from this, this trip, again, which was just a week ago. Um, is there a connection between the, the entities that are described, or typically the, the, the skinwalker, which is very rich in uh, Indian, American Indian lore, and the lights, and the UFOs, the typical, uh, typical UFOs, material UFOs that leave traces and produce electromagnetic effects and so on. And, and you have all three in a very small space sometimes described by the same people. Mm. Now, that's... Uh, I could almost argue on, on, on the two sides. I could argue that the, uh, the, the entities are a phenomenon of its own and that the UFOs are a phenomenon you know, of, of its own. But it's very uncomfortable to, to say that because, again, they are often seen by the same people in the same place. They are co-located, so I'm I'm struggling with that. I I don't you know I I don't have a good answer to that. Well, I noticed that uh, in the course of reading this, like from the year 1000 to to 1500 AD, there seems to be this strange coincidence or consistency across the board in the way of references to the number three, three months, three lights, three beings. Um. And I know even in my own experiences, as well as some other people we've spoken to, that there's some sort of preoccupation with the number three in regards to this. Do you have any idea or have you noticed this at all in your work over all these years? I, uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't say that, but then I haven't looked for that. Mm. I, I stayed away from uh, – because that, that kind of coincidence you know, could be – just that. <laughs> uh, yeah, it could, could just be a coincidence. Or, you know, when you start look, observing a pattern like that, then you see it everywhere. And I haven't done this, the kind of study you need to, to do to establish whether that's really a, 
a part of the phenomenon, a characteristic of the pattern or not. Um, but it, yes, it does, you know, it does show up frequently. Mm. We now turn to case number 115 from September 12th, 1271 in Japan. Saved from execution by a flying sphere. At midnight, one of Japan's greatest saints, Nichiren Shonen, 1222-1282, was being escorted to the beach to be executed. Just before the fatal moment, a brilliant sphere as large as the moon flew over, illuminating the landscape. The authorities were so frightened by the apparition that they changed their minds about putting Shonen to death. Instead, they exiled him to Sado Island, though this did not prevent his teachings from spreading. A branch of his teachings, the Soka Gakkai, has millions of adherents throughout the world today. This doesn't seem to be, within the course of the book, the only time that some sort of spiritual teacher or figure is, uh, is spared or saved by this phenomenon's interaction. But on the same token, or I guess on the flip of the coin from that, we now turn to case number 125, about 1347, Florence, Italy, low-flying cigar-shaped object at the time of the Black Plague. Writer Gianfranco Degli Esposti mentions that reports relating to the period of the famous Black Plague between 1347 and 1350 speak of strange cigar-shaped objects slowly crossing the sky, sometimes at low altitude, dispersing in their passage a disturbing mist. He attributes the Black Plague to these objects because immediately after the appearance of these shocking events, the epidemic exploded in that area. In Florence, a huge mass of vapors appeared in the sky, coming from the north. It spread throughout the land. In the east, in that same year, many animals fell from the sky. Their decomposing animal carcasses were said to make the air fetid and to cause the spread of the infamous illness that was fatal in India, Asia, and Britain. In Florence alone, it killed 60,000 people. So we have kind of like both one indicating like a, some sort of guiding or steering of spiritual belief uh, or control and the other one being population control, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, the question is for you, do you think this is truly what we're seeing here or is this simply the perception of the witnesses attributing meaning to the phenomena that they can understand? Uh, I think it, it is the latter. At least that's my, you know, my 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 own uh, belief. I think the the idea of the the black play. I mean, we we have to cite that in connection with that case, but uh, it, it's just one speculation by one person. Mm-hmm. Um, the the idea that there is mist associated with observations of uh, aerial phenomena is uh, frequent observation and it's um, uh, I mean the, the idea that it had anything to do with the uh, the illness is, is just somebody's uh, speculation but the fact that uh, events like that come to us are, are recorded they have survived because they were associated with a great person or a great teacher or an emperor or you know we don't know how many other cases happened in the countryside and they happened to some farmer who was illiterate nobody wrote it down and it, maybe it has survived in some 
you know, folklore uh, tale somewhere that the, the information has been lost. So, again, we have to look at this, and, and we've been very careful. I mean, we're not unaware of the fact that historical conditions play a huge role in what survives and what doesn't survive. So we were careful to divide the book into sections, usually one century at a time, and every section is preceded and followed by a description of you know, what was happening at the time culturally, scientifically, in terms of communications, you know, the, the invention of, of paper, the invention of the printing press, the invention of the telegraph in later years, and uh, to, to place it in that, that context. Because we know that people will attack the book saying, well, you know, it's vague folklore. Certainly the many uh, ufologists attacked Passport to Magonia by saying it's just vague, undocumented folklore mm. that I've dredged up, you know, to support that. And this is not undocumented folklore. I mean, every every case that we could track down you know, to, to the original source is completely referenced. And, uh, you know, in the Roman Empire, the, the consuls made a, a law, made a rule that they had to have a report every year, an official report on anything unusual seen in the sky, which was um, obviously for astrological reasons, because anything unusual in the sky would was believed to announce historical events. And in those records, we find, of course, many comets and meteors and so on, which the astronomers love because it enables you to extend your statistics back in time and you know confirm the, the period of comets and so on. But it leaves some cases that are unexplained, and that's, uh, of course, where we found many of the cases in the book. I mean, it's a little bit as, as if, um, you know, President uh, Obama said, called the Air Force and said, I want a quarterly report on every UFO of the United States on my desk. And um, so those are official official sources. Um, again, many, many other things were recorded by the church in their archives. Um, not always as miracles, sometimes as uh, strange things that they investigated as being potentially evil. So uh, there were in sometimes lengthy investigations done. The, the case of the chariot that was stopped in the middle of the uh, of the creek there was investigated by the local bishop and the local authorities, and they actually built a chapel there, which is still there. So, uh, you know, it shows that uh, these things have come down through history for, for good reasons. Well, I'm curious, in the, uh, in the 17th century, it seemed uh, that science was pretty keen to examine aerial phenomena. And, and even when reported, they were put into scientific journals and such of the day. Uh, at what point did it become taboo or such a subject of ridicule that science would no longer acknowledge it. I mean, and how responsible do you think that religious institutions were for that? I don't think it was religious institutions, because by then science had its own uh, strength and structure in society and and power. Actually, the, the scientists of the 17th and 18th century put our scientists to shame. Um, and that's one of the fascinating things in, in this book. You know, we we cross many cultures and many eras of history, and you can you can see the 
early development of science when scientists were actually open-minded. You know, wow, what a concept, you know, right. uh, that you'd look at the sky with an open mind and you would uh, record anything unusual that that uh, you saw there. And you have some of the greatest names in, in astronomy and physics uh, actually on record observing unusual aerial phenomena that are still unexplained. You know, Messier, Lagrange, Cassini, uh, you know, all, all these people, the secretary of the Royal Society in England and so on. Uh, these were heavyweights. Cassini uh, observed an, an object that seemed to be in orbit around Venus. He did not publish it until a couple of years later where, when he saw it again. And, and then he, um, he, he published it. A number of other people saw it, but it's no longer there. Well, what was it? I, I think to, to answer your question, the, the turning point may have been Vulcan. You know the planet, there used to be a planet, a planet called Vulcan in the solar system. It's, hmm. it's, it's not, we don't need it anymore, so nobody talks about it anymore. It was needed because, you know, Le Verrier, who was uh, director of Paris Observatory, had made brilliant calculations on the uh, perturbations of uh, Uranus and um, predicted that there would be a, a, another planet further away that he called Neptune, and he computed where it should be, and astronomers looked for it and found it and confirmed his calculation. So this was a great triumph of mathematical deduction or induction to uh, actually unveil the existence of a planet in the skies. I mean, this was one of the great triumphs of science. So there was another planet that was acting strangely, and that was Mercury. Uh, the Mer Mercury was had had perturbations of its orbit that were unexplained, and of course by then astronomers had exquisite instruments that could you know track differences of a few seconds of arc, and uh, there was a need for a theory to explain the perturbations of Mercury. So Leverrier thought. Well, I'm going to do it again. I will, I, I will uh, compute the orbit of a planet that would be between Mercury and the Sun to create this perturbation. So he did the calculations and predicted the existence of the planet, and then he called on uh, professional and amateur astronomers. You, you know, there, there has always been there's always been a cadre of semi-professional amateurs who are very well equipped were very well trained, but were not professional astronomers. They were, you know, doctors or physicists or, or teachers or something else. Um, but at night, they were uh, looking at the sky. So he called for them to send him any observations of an intramercurial planet. And there were two ways of finding one. One was to look when Mercury was in the sky and of course, you, usually when Mercury is in the sky, the sun is in the sky. So it's very difficult to observe. But uh, if you're very careful and you can shield uh, part of the sun and so on, you can you can look for such an, an object. The, the other way, which is a lot easier, is during an eclipse. And there were about 25 observ good observations that he selected among all the observations that he was given. So based on, on those observations that were, you know, again, from both professional and, and semi-professional astronomers, 
he computed an orbit and uh, decided that there was this planet he called Vulcan. The problem was that uh, when he, he tried to see it again, it wasn't there. <laughs> okay. But they found other things. So the, the good observations by you know, skilled astronomers kept accumulating, and he kept recomputing his orbit for Vulcan, and they kept looking for it, and, and it was never there. Uh, in 1905, special relativity was was published by Einstein, and it explained the perturbations of Mercury by you know the mass of the sun. And then nobody needed Vulcan anymore, so they swept all these observations under the rug. Well, I've we've gone back and we've you know, unearthed these observations again. They were a part of mainstream astronomy at one time, and now since nobody needs them. Uh, you know, they've been deleted from the astronomy books, which mm. I, I find, you know, it's, uh, I'm not crying cover up, cover up, but, uh, you know, there's, there's something wrong with that. Especially because, uh, whenever there is an eclipse of the sun, there's some astronomer somewhere who sees something that shouldn't be there. So, uh, mm. you know, may, maybe there is a Vulcan somewhere after all. We now turn to case number 140. In the evening, a Hungarian merchant, Peter Taglamento, was leading his herd of cattle to Bassano del Grappa. As he came to an area of thick brush close to Castel di Godego, he realized he had lost the way. All around him were only shadows, the woods, and deep silence. In despair, Peter started praying, and suddenly he saw a great light. Still trying to realize where he was and what was happening, Peter saw a young woman of great beauty who told him how to get to the roads towards Bassano, but requested that her chapel be built at that place. She planted a cross in the earth as proof of her visit. Peter found his herd and reached the leaders of the community of Godego to fulfill the mandate he had received. At first, no one believed him but they found the cross planted in the woods. This convinced them, and they decided to erect a chapel where people came in solemn processions. Uh, well, Jacques, I'd like to uh, ask about the phantom women who seem to appear quite a bit and are often associated with the Virgin Mary. Um, I have a few questions about that. One is, do any other religions outside of Christianity see her, interpret her on their religious level, and then build a temple where she stood? I am no expert on uh, religious, on comparative religion. These women, uh, usually referred to as ladies, um, tend to appear out of a sphere of light, which is why, you know, we, we, we haven't included a catalog of observations, for example, of the Virgin Mary in the book, um, because the and, and this was, you, you have to realize that the, the book is the product of of some tension, very healthy tension between Chris, Chris Obeck and, and myself. I was tempted to include observations of beings, for example, beings of light and so on in, in the book. Chris made the point that if, if we do that, it's going to be, you know, 5,000 cases, not 500. And we really should focus on cases where there is an, an aerial phenomenon that's unexplained. 
So if there is an, uh, an unexplained aerial phenomenon and then there is a being, a being of light or other, then it's okay. So we, we had some serious fights about this because there were some cases I would have loved to include that we ended up not including. But the the, the few cases where there was a, a, a being interpreted as a as a lady, I think in many cases it is it is seen through the religious filter of the time. Very often, I'm tempted to say what happened is somebody was traveling through a forest, came to a clearing. In the clearing, there was a sphere of light. The sphere of light sort of opened up, and or a being of light was seen inside. And of course, when the story is told the next day in the village or in the town, it becomes, you know, a lady of light. And I think it's an easy. By the way, that's what happened at Fatima. I mean, at Fatima, you know, the, which is not included in, in in this book because this book stops in uh, 1879. Fatima was in 1917. But before the so-called miracle at Fatima, two years before, the the children had a, a number of observations of a sphere of light, and out of the sphere of light, or in, you know, inside the sphere of light, there was a being of light that they called an angel. And they actually uh, said prayers to that angel. And there were some very interesting psychological phenomena in connection with that. This was two years before the so-called apparitions of the Virgin at Fatima. And we tend to focus on the miracle itself because that's what most of the books talk about the miracle uh, for, for good or bad reasons. But I'm interested in what happened before. And the the reason we included these cases uh, was that it it all started with um, a, an object or a, a, a sphere of light again. Well, let me um, let me tell you. Uh, you know, I'll tell you what I'm interested in, and, and you may not even have the answer to this, but it just seems odd to me that uh, in the Catholic Church, women play a passive role, a sexist role, and yet here's this woman, or what they interpret as a woman. And they assume it's the Virgin Mary, and then they build a church or a temple there. Um, have you ever asked anyone in the church why they would do that? And, you know, where's Jesus in all of this, as opposed to Mary? And why would they assume that it was a force of good, as opposed to a, a demon playing a trick or something along those lines? Have you ever asked anybody? Oh, I think there are tons of books about that. But every religion, I mean, in 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 a way. Uh, the I really shouldn't answer that because I'm not you know here it's a pretty deep question of of course of comparative religion, but every major religion has a goddess, you know I mean think of Isis, uh, think of uh, you know the Mithraic religion and so on. There is there is usually a, a goddess that balances. Uh, I mean you have to have an equilibrium in the you know, deity, and uh, or in the divine level, and that equilibrium is, is given by that that figure of the goddess. I mean, again, think of Isis. Um, usually, she is the the mother, and usually a virgin mother of an entity who um, goes on to be one of the great teachers or one of the great uh, figures within the uh, within the Trinity or, or within the. Uh, the structure of the 
of, of that religion. So in, in that way, uh, the Virgin Mary is very typical. I mean, she is um, a, a, another goddess, if you want, in, in that tradition. You know, she has, uh, of course, in, in the religion today, she has a very specific role and, and a very powerful role, uh, contrary to to the idea that uh, women are secondary. Women are not secondary. Uh, you know, think of all the, the saints uh, that the, the church has uh, has recognized. Uh, so I don't know what, um, you know, a, a Catholic scholar would say about this, but, I mean, obviously... An, op- an observation like this, I mean, let's go back to, you know, the raw observations. Somebody going through the forest sees a globe of light and a being inside the light. It's usually that, that being is not clearly seen because the, the light is very powerful. So the, the being looks like it has robes, it has white robes. It's very easy to go there from there to saying it's a, it's a woman or it's a, a, a lady. You know, remember Guadalupe, a lady clothed with the sun. And when the story is told, in certainly in, in Western Europe, it would obviously have been seen through the filter, of a, a, a religious filter, and interpreted as, as an apparition of, um, of Our Lady. But we have to ask the question. Now we turn to case 202, 15 November 1572, Rommersville, Switzerland, a farmer's abduction. Hans Bugman, a 50-year-old Swiss farmer from Rommersville, had gone to Simpatch, a nearby village. When he failed to return, his wife sent out their two sons to look for him. The boys found their father's hat, coat, and gloves. They also found his saber and his sheath lying on the path. This frightened them, and they suspected that Klaus Bugman, their father's cousin, who had for years been an enemy to the family, could have murdered him. The authorities had Bookman's property searched in vain. Four weeks later, the family received news about Hans Bookman's whereabouts. He was in Milan. On 2 February 1573, two and a half months after he disappeared, he came back. His wife and children were astonished to see that he did not have a single hair on his head, his face, or his chin. His face was so swollen that they didn't recognize him at first. When the authorities learnt that the man had returned, they interrogated him, as so much trouble had been caused to Cousin Claus. The town chronicler, Renmord Sysad, 1545-1614, was present at the interrogation. Bookman explained that on the day he disappeared, he carried money to pay Hans Sherman, the owner of the Romersville Inn, to whom he owed 16 florins. Sherman was not at home, so he decided to go to Sempach on other business matters. There he stayed until dawn, drinking something, but very little, and then set off for home. As he was passing through the forest, he suddenly heard a strange noise. At first he thought it was the buzz of a swarm of bees, but then he realized it sounded more like music. He felt afraid and was no longer sure where he was nor what was happening. He unsheathed his sword and swiped at the air around him, losing his hat, gloves, and coat in the process. Before losing consciousness, he could feel that he was being lifted up into the air. He was taken to another country. He was disoriented and confused, with no idea where he was. He felt pain and swellings in his face and around his head. Two weeks after his abduction, he found himself in Milan, with no idea how he got there. 
He was weak because he had not eaten or drunk anything in days, but he was determined to find his way home. Hans Bookman neither knew the city nor spoke the language, and had no way of communicating his situation to anyone until he came across a guard of German origin who took pity on him. So Jacques, when we're talking about Hans Bookman, uh, is there any historical record of what happened to Hans after his entire ordeal was through? I don't, I don't know of that. Um, we, our source is a man called Sizat who knew Bookman personally, um, and um, I don't, um, I don't read German, so somebody would have to go back to that to the the book he he wrote where he mentions, you know, other cases of, of abduction. I mean, this is an abduction. Yes. And, if, you know, in, in the current UFO literature, abductions are not supposed to have happened before maybe, you know, 100 years. And, and uh, you know, the, the abduction researchers are pretty sure this is a, a new phenomenon and so on. Well, as you can tell, in, in our book, there are lots of abductions. And... Um, this is uh, this is one this is one of them. They were very often attributed to fairies, or uh, again the, to the the fairy faith, or elves and uh, or demons in the Middle Ages, or in, in this case in the 16th century. I don't know. It's an interesting question. Somebody would have to go back to this book, which we cite here completely, uh, to see whether Cesar talks about the later years of Bookman. Well, I know there's another case in there. I'm sorry I don't have that in front of me where a woman saw six green-dressed men uh, surround her. She went into a fit and then uh, was uh, literally unconscious for a matter of time and then came out of that and was a healer uh, essentially for the rest of her life. Um, when we're talking about a case like that, that – that seemed to be very steeped in and some sort of altered state of consciousness for her. Um, she remarked, can't, can't you see them going out the window? And of course, she, was, she had people around her who didn't see anything. And that kind of leads me into more or less one of my personal questions for you I've always wanted to ask you about. We, we've talked a lot on this show about Terrence McKenna. And I know that uh, from listening to one of his lectures online that you two apparently shared a stage at one point. Um, yes, in, in Switzerland, that the, um, a show where there were artists and scientists and researchers together in Freiburg. Okay. Um, his outlook on the whole UFO phenomena and altered states, uh, we've talked about a lot. And uh, as far as his shamanic practices and psychedelic compound uh, investigations, I guess you could call them. Do you think he was on to anything in that direction? Absolutely, yes. Uh, if only because by by um, looking at uh, observations or perceptions that you can uh, you can have, you know, I mean, UFO witnesses when they are close to the object tend to go into an altered state. I mean, that's only one, you know, what um, has been called the X factor. There is a distortion of reality. So to the extent that um, uh, Terence was, was exploring uh, other distortions of reality, I think that's, that's relevant. I mean, we need to know a lot more about the, you know, extreme, um, extreme perceptions. Of course, the idea that 
some people see these beings or see objects and other people don't. If you remember, that, again, at Fatima, there, there was uh, such a thing. The, the children saw something the crowd didn't see. The crowd saw something that was different. And, um, of course, one, one of the children had what she interpreted as, as a communication with a very definite being. Uh, that's what in, in Celtic uh, law is called the second sight. And there are recipes for gaining second sight, and there are people gifted with second sight, uh, still today in Scotland and Ireland and, and other places. So it's something that has been recognized for a long time. So yes, I think whether that happens in normal perception or whether it happens under you know, psychedelics or under other forms of, of, of altered state, I think that's uh, that's completely relevant to, to the problem, yes. I should say that it's a tangential, I mean, the exploration of visions and, and uh, you know, trips uh, with um, hallucinogens and so on is, is something that I've, I've stayed away from simply because, you know, these people go to interesting places and they certainly describe interesting things but they can't go back to the same place twice. <laughs> so as a scientist, you know, I, I'm tempted to say it's it's anecdotal, and they probably would disagree violently with me. Uh, but, uh, you know, I've, I've never done that kind of experiment uh, simply because I think by, you know, whatever uh, brain nature has given me, uh, has its own limitations, and I I want to to explore reality with with this particular brain, but it's legitimate research. One thing uh, Jeff and I talk about a lot on the show also is that um, we see that this phenomenon can sort of mirror however you feel about it. So if you think it's aliens, it'll show you aliens. If you think it's demonic, it'll show you demonic. One, do you agree with that? And two, if so, do you find any cases in antiquity where people have experienced that? Very difficult to answer that for the ancient cases because, again, they come to us through a filter. Somebody recorded the story. Uh, you know, think of the story of Ezekiel. I mean, Ezekiel is a classic abduction case, but the book of Ezekiel was written some about seven centuries after Ezekiel died. So, what we have is uh, a copy of a copy of a translation of a copy of whatever was written at the time, was recorded at the time. So we, we have a series of filters, and it's very difficult to to uh, to go back. Of course, as we get closer and closer to today, and certainly when you get to the uh, 17th, 18th, 19th century, you have much, much greater, much greater precision. So... Uh, no, I, I think there is something we can say about that. Uh, and do you think that we're getting any closer to the origin of any of this phenomena, or do you think that that is even realistic, or perhaps it's a sort of a perpetual dangling carrot getting us to keep asking questions? No, I think we are making progress. The fact that we now have an indication, and in this book we, we don't propose any theory or any hypothesis. The, the material is too... Uh, too uh, broad and, and uh, far-reaching for us to express any hypothesis, except that it does seem to be the same phenomena. 
And if it is the same phenomenon, then we really have a problem. But in, in a way, when, when you have a mystery, uh, when you have a, a little mystery in science, you're in trouble. But if you can expand the mystery and make it a big mystery, then it's a lot easier to handle. You know, when you have, you know, one photograph of a galaxy, you're you're really in trouble. But when you have, uh, you know, all the galaxies photographed by by the Hubble telescope, then then you begin to have a science. And uh, it's the same here as we explore this phenomenon um, more. Know, deeper in terms of present documentation and ancient documentation and begin to see it, to see the patterns uh, emerge, um, it's becoming, uh, well, first it's becoming more and more interesting. We were, I mean, the, the, the reason we worked so hard on this for six years, you know, Chris had done, had already worked on it for about two years before he called me. Uh, or contacted me by email, actually. The, the, the reason we did all this work is that we became, we just fell in love with the material. It's just in, incredible. In terms of the history of culture, not in terms of just UFOs, and in terms of the history of science, and in terms of anthropology. I mean, the, the foreword by uh, Professor Hufford makes that clear. I mean, Professor Hufford had, had written, you know, The Terror That Comes in the Night, which was a you know, classic in anthropology, and he fell in love with this material too when when he read the book. And again, I think we're just at the beginning, but it's going to be a very interesting trip. We now turn to case number one fifty-seven, thirteenth August fourteen ninety-one, Milan, Italy, summoning the aliens. Seven men appeared before philosopher Fasius Cardan. Fazio Cardano, in his study. According to his son Jerome, the story left by his father, a mathematically gifted lawyer and friend of Leonardo da Vinci, read as follows. When I had completed the customary rites at about the twentieth hour of the day, seven men duly appeared to me clothed in silken garments resembling Greek togas and wearing, as it were, shining shoes. The undergarments beneath their glistening and ruddy breastplates seemed to be wrought of crimson, and were of extraordinary glory and beauty. Nevertheless, all were not dressed in this fashion, but only two who seemed of nobler rank than the others. The taller of them, who was of ruddy complexion, was attended by two companions, and the second, who was fairer and of shorter stature, by three. Thus in all, there were seven. They were about forty years of age, but they did not appear to be above thirty. When asked who they were, they said they were men composed, as it were, of air, and subject to birth and death. It was true that their lives were much longer than ours and might even reach to 300 years' duration. Questioned on the immortality of our soul, they affirmed that nothing survived which is peculiar to the individual. When my father asked them if they did not reveal treasures to men if they knew where they were, they answered that it was forbidden by a peculiar law under the heaviest penalties for anyone to communicate this knowledge to men. They remained with my father for over three hours, but when he questioned them as to the cause of the universe, they were not agreed. The tallest of them denied that God had made the world from eternity. On the contrary, the other added that God created it from moment to moment, so that should he desist for an instant, the world would perish. What, in your opinion, is the reason why, and I know why is not a productive question to ask, but... uh, 
why is there no coherency in a lot of these statements or, or a lot of the, 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 the verbiage that comes out of this phenomenon coming from the phenomenon itself? What, what do you think that's about? It's a fascinating story because it's related by, of course, one of the shining minds of the 15th century, a uh, great mathematician, great physicist, uh, or natural philosopher, if you want. Um, what's very interesting is that the two selves, these two entities uh, who are before him, these two aliens, if you want, disagree. One says that uh, the universe was created by God uh, of all eternity, and that's it. The other one says, no, 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 it's being created at every microsecond, essentially, from moment to moment. And I didn't expand on that. You could certainly write an entire book about this. Of course, one view is the classic physics view, and the other view is quantum mechanics. And here, the two, these two aliens in the, you know, talking to this mathematician in, in the 15th century, are essentially stating the two systems of the world as we have them today in physics. And that's quite remarkable. I shared, I, I took that, uh, that, that narrative to, to a number of people, uh, especially people at Stanford, when, when I was working at, at Stanford University. And um, they, they told me, you know, that, that idea of the universe being created from moment to moment, which is essentially quantum mechanics, is a, a well-known philosophy, Arab philosophy, which actually dates to the 10th and 11th century, called occasionalism. Occasionalism says that what you see around you, if you look at you know, your telephone or you look at a book, it's not the same book you had an hour ago. It's another occasion of the same book. And this is fascinating in terms of information science because it means what we see is produced by software. There is a software program up there somewhere, and that, that's very platonic also. I mean, it relates to the world of ideas from which this universe, this material universe, is being created. Now, I, I'm not... You know, I'm not smart enough to study occasionalism. I've tried, and it's it's very difficult. I think it it would help to to be able to read Arabic for to begin with, and to go back into these ancient texts. But um, of course, a lot of our science comes from there. It comes from the the Arab philosophies of the 11th century that uh, were inspired in part by by the Greeks, by Plato, and so on. And, that was saved during the middle, you know, the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages in Europe, when the Church was essentially censoring any science. The the Arabs had very very advanced science, which is why so many things in our science uh, start by Al, you know, algebra, Aldebaran, you know, alchemy, Al, and uh, Altair, uh, the names of the stars and so on. All that is actually Arabic names, and. Occasionalism says that there are no miracles because if if you hold a book in your hand and it vanishes, all it means is that the there was that that, that the software up up there decided to delete the occasion of that particular book. 
So <laughs> you can have things that appear and disappear, and it's perfectly normal. I mean, in that kind of, of physics of the universe, that, that kind of theory of the universe, you must expect miracles and coincidences because it's driven by higher-level software. And that's what, the, that's what that self was saying. <laughs> that's a lot of words that for that. Yeah. But no, but yeah. that, that takes you pretty far. And, you know, try that uh, on, a, uh, on an academic researcher someday, <laughs> and, and, and you'll see this is not just your average UFO sighting. Right. Well, I mean, that, that then kind of leads me into what Terrence McKenna used to say about, uh, well, what he recalled as the, the elf nest or the DMT tykes. Um, uh, and, and the way that psychedelics had ran throughout history is that he said things that seemed to coincide again with me and the, uh, the alien experiences that you read about is that for Terrence, these things made suggestions that suggested the calculus it suggested uh different modes of science and and that so is this the same thing we're seeing suggestion or injection of some kind of unique knowledge that we would not have otherwise gotten to or injection beforehand that we we're getting there but they're pushing us along uh it's tempting to um to say that i uh, had a, a, a brief discussion of that with Margaret Mead in in the seventies, uh, and you did? Y- yes. Wow. <laughs> oh, no, she she cited one of my books, uh, "Challenge to Science," at one time, because it's you know obviously it's relevant to uh, to anthropology and to history, the, the history of culture. The uh, even though you know academic researchers have ignored all that material. But they are beginning to wake up that this is pretty basic. I mean, it's pretty fundamental. Uh, and you know, the question is, is humanity capable of inventing all these things we've invented, starting with agriculture and mining and, and chemistry and all that? Or did we need entities from above to come and teach us all that? And um, the position I took was that we were constantly, you know, disparaging our own abilities and the abilities of our ancestors, who, by the way, were not stupid to create all that. Of course, it took them a long time to create agriculture and husbandry and, and, and all that and mining. But, uh, you know, they had pretty much the same brain that we have. I mean, we we use it maybe better today because we have better tools. You know, those tools were invented initially by these primitive people. So um, her point was that we don't need aliens to to explain the rise of civilization. And, and I agree with that. Of course, it's tempting to say, yes, but when they're observing things that led them to imagine tools and imagine theories as, as we do today. And I think they're absolutely, I think the that's why I, I think the UFO phenomenon should be very important for physics because it gives us a an existence theorem for things in physics that are far beyond what, what we can do today. And, uh, you know, NASA and, and DARPA have a, just initiated a program last week on the next 100 years of exploring the stars, and it's based on advanced propulsion. 
Well, you know, if UFOs are real, they are telling us you don't need propulsion. I mean, you certainly don't need chemical propulsion or nuclear propulsion. There are other ways of doing it. And, you know, before we, we invest for 100 years in things that uh, go, uh, you know, go forward with, with rockets or, or uh, nuclear, you know, nuclear power, maybe we should uh, think seriously about other ways of doing it. Here's sort of an abstract question that I'll end on, and then I think Jeff has one more. Um, you know, we often talk about this in terms of uh, evolution. <laughs> and here's my question. How can it be about evolution when the quality of minds applying themselves to ufology are mainly stagnant or stupid? I mean, is it possible that we're – that you know, you call this uh, wonders in the sky. Is it possible we're evolving prematurely out of our sense of wonder? Um, what, what do you make of that? What do you make of you've got this this giant question of what is this thing interacting with us and the people who are most applying their minds to it, of course, present company excluded, obviously, uh, are morons. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. No, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think you're, you're really unfair. Uh, I think that the... Uh, the, the the people who are, as you say, applying their minds to it, are a you know a cross section of people who have have had the courage to recognize that there was something unusual there, and maybe studying it fulfills a you know a need in in their life. It certainly did for me. Uh, it fulfills a, a need for fulfilling my you know my my curiosity about the universe. I'm constantly astounded by what the universe does. And that's why I became an astronomer. Oh, sure. I'm talking and, mostly and about disclosure people and, and that, that sort of thing, the people who have sort of co-opted ufology for what seem to be almost religious reasons, you know, exopolitics, well, that sort of thing. Well, but that always it always happens. Uh, it, it happens in, to scientists. You know, scientists, uh, they... They go into astronomy because of curiosity and wonder, and they once they they learn a few mathematical principles and so on, and they became they become high priests and they become it's almost a you know a, a science uh, science becomes a, a sort of religion with its own dogmas and they get stuck with it. So it it happens to uh, it happens to the best people, not just to morons, <laughs> uh, and and they certainly act like morons when they talk about UFOs, because they've never taken the trouble to to really look at the material. Uh, by the way, the the case uh, that of the abductee becoming a healer is two forty five, uh, yes. April sixteen forty six. So it's the case of Anne Jeffries, um, and she. She saw, uh, she claimed to be abducted by uh, six small people, as you said. Uh, her story is remarkable because she did become a healer. Mm -hmm. And you could say, well, some people have healing abilities, and she just happened to attribute it to um, maybe a vision she had. And But there are a number of cases like that. Certainly in the modern remote viewing studies that were done, uh, at uh, at SRI and other places, um, many of the subjects uh, attributed their what they described as their psychic abilities 
to having seen a UFO, having had an experience like like that of Anne Jeffries. So here it's another bridge, this time between um, UFOs and, and parapsychology. And that's, again, one of the very uh, pregnant areas, I think, that uh, we, we should be studying more. Yeah. Well, my last, uh, my last one for you is... Um is again a, a, a personal thing. Maybe you can help me out with this. <laughs> uh, you've been into this field for a very long time, and I don't think that I'm speaking out of turn to say that you've changed this field uh, greatly more than once. How is it that you are able to stay in a field that can be incredibly volatile, stubborn? I don't want to say, well, I'll say stupid in, in certain senses, uh, it seems well, backward. It's a circus. It's a circus. It has become yes. a circus. Yes. How, how do you how do you keep going? <laughs> <laughs> well, how, how do you do it? <laughs> uh, first, I, I've never put my ego in, into this, uh, and uh, I've had a lot of help from uh, you know. I have a very strong family. Uh, uh, I care a lot for. Uh, you know my my children and, and my friends. Uh, I'm uh, I've never relied on this uh, for income. I mean, you, you know, books don't don't really pay you anything. They are uh, mostly a labor of love. Uh, certainly, this one is. And I'm driven by curiosity, and I have been trained. I'm I'm in a business. You know, you know, I, I used to be a scientist, but I, I, I'm not a scientist anymore. I know how science is done. I rely on, on scientists for advice and, and validation of what I do. But I, I deal with high technology, and in a way, this is my job. I mean, you know, in, in, uh, I'm in Silicon Valley, and in Silicon Valley, you don't stand still. Uh, you, you have to constantly look at the frontier, and this is a frontier. And the, the people, my colleagues, uh, sometimes are amused by what I do, but they know they know I'm not crazy. Uh, if, if you know, if they thought I was crazy, they wouldn't entrust me with uh, the kind of thing that I'm entrusted with in, in in my work, in my normal work. So I also have a, I think, a, a pretty good sense of humor. I think the phenomenon. My interaction with the phenomenon, if you will, is at, at the level of um, of humor. It, it's constantly presenting us with things when when we think we got it right. When we think, I mean, the extraterrestrial theory is a pretty good theory. You know, I mean, there's got to be life out there everywhere. Uh, and we were saying that Heineck and I and a few other people in the 60s, mm-hmm. Heineck used to teach his students that there must be planets around stars like there are kittens around cats. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, at the time, you know, many astronomers didn't believe that. Well, now we were beginning to have a proof of that. I mean, we keep discovering planets, including planets that look like the Earth, by the dozen and pretty soon by the hundreds. So... There's got to be life out there, and it should be able to life and consciousness, and it should be able to interact with us. The problem is, when you stop looking at the facts, that theory doesn't explain the sightings. 
And I've spent a lot of time talking to people. You know, I got, you know, just a week ago, I was in, in the middle of a field in Utah talking to uh, farmers and ranchers and people who had seen those things. Uh, they didn't see spacecraft. Some of them did see things that looked like spacecraft, but they did things that certainly are beyond the, any theory of spacecraft we have. And I think that's where we can begin to do some good science. So that's what, what drives me. I'm not selling any theory. You know, I'm not uh, giving public lectures and so on. I, I'm not, uh, you know, I have a day job. Right. It keeps me busy. But in my day job, I apply the same principles of, you know, just very trying to be very precise and very and try to document things. In in my business, we call it due diligence. I'm allowed to be wrong because everybody is wrong from time to time. Certainly, scientists are wrong much of the time. But I I'm not allowed to be naive. If mm. if I'm naive, I, I should be fired. And so I, I apply the same principle to to this business. I, I try to look at the facts and, and not not take them naively. Well, so it's essentially, I think, what I said some time ago, which is to put your head down and just do the work as opposed to um, – I, I, I think Jeremy and I – and I, I can't speak wholly for him, but I think we've both kind of taken the stance of can't really clean up ufology. I think that was kind of our thing for a while is that we thought we could do some good and to change something. Um, or, or at least make something more critical, and, and that doesn't seem to work. So the answer is what we've decided to do is just kind of buckle down and and plow. <laughs> uh, well, I think it's it's all right. For I mean, people have naturally invested a lot of their emotions into. I mean, and I think the, our book. I mean, that's one of our conclusions in the book that the, this phenomenon has always done that. Throughout history, it has influenced belief systems. It has influenced religions. You could say every religion, because it's not recognized for what it is. So that's, that makes it even more powerful. It's always just beyond the threshold of impossibility and uh, the threshold of perception. So it has had an enormous influence, and it still does. The fact that it's not recognized by the academic culture is remarkable. It, it's maybe its major characteristic that you have these thousands upon thousands of observations by by normal people, and it it's not recognized anywhere. You cannot publish an article in a scientific journal about it. Uh, it will be rejected out of hand just because it's associated with the, with with this phenomenon, and that's where its power comes from, and. Sure, people are going to invest their belief system and their emotions and their ideas and their into it, and that's that's normal. Yeah. It's always happened, and yeah. I think that's one of the things that emerged from from this uh, from the study that that we've done. It's one of the things that kept uh, Chris uh, Chris and me uh, going. Well, Jeremy, did you have anything else? Uh, no, we've already gone. Uh, past the hour, and so I, you know, thank you. Of course, do I have anything else? I have a thousand more questions. Are you me? <laughs> me too. <laughs> um, but Jacques, I, I just want to say, you know, it's very rare that we get to end by saying it's been an honor to speak yes. with a guest, but it has truly been an honor to speak with you. 
So thank you. Well, the, the pleasure is mutual. I, I really enjoyed your questions, and they were very perceptive. And again, I, I, I think this book is going to be the beginning of something. This is Ted Phillips, and you're listening to Paratopia. Well, the Jeff. Well, the Jer. How was that? I think I found my new mantra. It's okay (laughs) to be wrong. It's not okay to be naive. That's right. There you are. There you go. There's our dream interview. (laughs) Round one of hopefully more. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty spectacular. And and we only had an hour, and there were a lot more questions, both from the book and from us. But I think we're going to try and get Jacques back on again uh, in the future. So... You know they can wait. The questions can wait, and uh, but we got through quite a bit, which was good. Yeah, and I hope you enjoyed the the format of this. I hope that worked for everybody. I tried to make it a little special. Um, so, what did you learn there, Jeff? Uh, it's a tough nut to crack. How's that? I thought what was really interesting is that he he finds Terrence to be onto something, and it wasn't that I thought he wouldn't. I just I don't know. Again, the what I remember from just say UFO magazine back in the day when, when Terrence uh, had a, had a cover story um, in that was a lot of people saying, yeah, but they're on drugs and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and I guess, I don't know, I guess we've come far enough into looking at that, that entire culture and that entire psychedelic atmosphere as something deeper and more, uh, and certainly scientifically interesting as far as altered perceptions and altered perceptions play a huge part into this. I mean, I think when you're talking about the uh, the Hans Buckman case in uh, 1572 in Switzerland, you know, he's riding, uh, you know, on, on a wagon or horse drawn, whatever, and he hears a buzzing. And then that buzzing, then it gets equated to being like music. And uh, that's well associated in the psychedelic experiments, but you and I both have noticed that buzzing, periodic buzzing, and then barely perceptible music, like distant music, like music in the next room, when we're using binaural beats, you hear that. And so the altered state of consciousness thing, I think, is at least for me that's one of the biggest things to come across and i'm i'm really glad that he said yeah i think he was on to something because it all kind of fits together very nicely mhm i'll tell you uh i found the vulcan planet uh lecture very interesting yeah and yeah. especially in terms of these photos that we keep seeing now of a disc near the sun or in front of the sun and everyone says mm-hmm. what is that right uh now of course we don't know that that's a planet or something but it certainly gives one pause doesn't it yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it I, again, I was watching a, a documentary last night. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was on the UFO thing, but I was back and forth uh, in reading this book and trying to get prepared for tonight. Um, I think it was a, an astrophysicist saying, you know, we may not know everything, but we know a lot. And I just kind of stopped me dead in my tracks. I'm like, really? We do? I don't think we know a lot. I think we know a lot for us. Um, in terms of knowing a lot, what, how do you measure a lot? We know a lot. 
you know, I think that could be said for a lot of science is that, yeah, we know many things, but now it seems with uh, this kind of break from standard Newtonian physics, I think we're getting into the deeper aspects of everything. And so therefore science is being constantly questioned now, which I think is a good thing. But certainly, I mean, I, I found it interesting that in the book way back in the day, science was genuinely interested in this. They were open to discussing it and to analyzing it and to um, speaking to witnesses and, and getting them to draw um, the, these amazing etchings that are also in the book. Uh, that, like it, you know, that's stopping just it, – it's like you talk about where did we break from knowing this was all real to not knowing or to suspecting that it was all hokey nonsense? Like where is that break? Well, where is the break with science? Um, you know, I, I, I'm sure there's more than, than the Vulcan lecture between that break. Uh, there's probably a lot more. And, and I don't know. From what I've read, uh, just by the notion of the woman that we spoke of uh, – who became the healer after her abductions, you know, she was imprisoned uh, for that. I mean, that was witchcraft and sorcery. And so how much did religion play into demonizing this whole thing? Um, not recognizing the other, averting your gaze when you would see something strange, not talking about it under fear of penalty of death in some cases, or being accused of being a witch, um, that sort of thing. So you know, how does that all kind of figure in? I think that could be when we lost uh, that part of, of knowledge. But but I'll tell you, if you all pick up the book, um, a couple of interesting things in there just visually uh, to walk away with is that um, we have case number uh, – well, 1554, look it up, Salon de Provence, France, uh, Nostradamus. Uh, reported an object. And then you skip ahead a little bit to 1561 in Nuremberg, Germany. And when it's in the book, we see exactly the same arrowhead-shaped object depicted in etchings. And so, (laughs) you know, you talk about the phenomenon maybe not being an objective reality, maybe being visionary. I don't know. When I see things like that separate by miles and years and different people and yet they're drawing the same object i thought that that was incredible that 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 same object i mean just precisely would show up in the same type of etching as uh, you know attributed to some sort of celestial event yeah well do you get any sense of uh, whether or not they attach the same meaning to it as well no um i mean in general you know if you go through this book and you read the language um, these are always equated to terrible visions or horrifying visions. Certainly the Nuremberg, Germany case is uh, the, the sky was awash in discs and balls and rods and, and arrowheads. I mean, the, the etchings from that are pretty spectacular. Uh, if that was indeed, if we were standing there in that time, what they saw. You know, I mean, hell, it, it even goes into an object that uh, Michelangelo painted that he saw. And um, and once again, the dangling carrot rears its ugly head because that painting is now lost slash or stolen. Uh, either way, we ain't seeing it. Um, so that that kind of <laughs> um, 
that kind of dangling carrot or just enough to make the to make the the interest lie happens and then nothing um so that dangling carrot you're going to find that throughout this book i think um i don't know i i go back again to that uh, cigar shaped objects dispersing the mist that then these people saw this and then it seemed to be a pre- precursor to an outbreak of the plague and i look at that and i go is it almost like a Mothman type of thing where Mothman was seen uh, near the bridge before the bridge collapsed? And uh, is it some kind of psychic precursor um, that people saw? And then, uh, and, and then this, this was not the reason for the outbreak, but rather it was the precursor visionary event to the outbreak. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. That's Well, here's a question that all of this brings to mind, too, is – Back then, whenever then was, I mean, when people were uh, all about nationalism and, Mm. you know, fighting for their country and all of that, then is this phenomena uh, or phenomenon is I don't I'm not even I don't even know if it's plural anymore, but whatever (laughs) the enigma um, is it responding, you know, in the way that we talk about the more you give, the more you get or Mm -hmm. it becomes your expectation. Is it doing that on? A societal level um, mm. in these these big sightings because that's the way the people at the time thought they didn't really think about themselves as much as they thought about doing for the country um, or mm. for the clan or for the people. Wow, that's a damn good question. <laughs> yeah, I should have asked that to Jacques, huh? Yeah, <laughs> what are you asking me for? You dope. <laughs> I mean, that might explain why people are seeing, for instance, large battles in the sky and things like that. Yeah. You know that we're not seeing today. Well, I mean, what's really interesting when you look back, I mean, I'm, I'm looking here for a case that I actually had written down to ask Jacques about, but uh, um, there's this odd disconnect of the manifestations that people say, and I'm just calling them manifestations because I don't know what other category to put them in. Uh, you know, on one hand, we have literally men in the sky with armor on and swords and shields in chariots, uh, soldiers marching. Uh, men standing next to an altar, and so on, versus spoked wheels, crosses, pillars, rockets even, and other more or less iconic UFO representations of that. But yet, both of them seem to exist more or less throughout history together. You know, I, I was going to ask him, is this, is this only mankind's perception of the phenomena, just as today we have cases where two witnesses both report an odd event, but one's description is completely different from the other? I mean, is that could that be what that is? Um, I, again, they, if you read through the book, you'll see, um, in particular, the Arabian rocket, which there is a uh, an etching of. And I, damn it, I forgot to ask him about this. But uh, um, if you get the book, you'll see there are three crescents on the side of this alleged rocket, and the bottommost crescent, if you turn the page or you even look at it the way it's orientated on the page now. Um, that bottom crescent is, for all intent and purposes, a scythe. Uh, there is a large handle, and there is a smaller secondary handle. And my wife, looking at it, she brought up a good point in that, is this possibly a representation of a silo <laughs> and grain being of the harvest, and the scythe falls in line with the imagery there? Or by the same token, is it is it symbolic of something else? I mean, um, and they do make... 
a good point in here is that these etchings often were reproduced over and over and over and uh, and sometimes used for other purposes. So we don't actually know if that's an accurate representation or not. But certainly the Nuremberg etchings, those are very uh, very well known. I'm sure if you guys look them up and see them, you'll you'll recognize them immediately. They've been shown on TV a billion times. But I don't I don't I can't think of one case other than other than the case of the folks up north from me seeing the tractor trailer floating over their barn. I mean that's certainly not a, a a craft of some sort, or that's definitely akin, I think, to a person standing there. Or it's still not a it's not a UFO. It's a it's a it's a different object. It's a current time object. Um, so that I'd put that in the same category as the the men in the chariots and the battles going on and all of that. So mm-hmm. I don't know how, how prevalent is that today. I, I honestly don't know. I've not heard a lot about that. Yeah, and going along with that would be dragons is another thing that sort of pops up all over the place uh, throughout history. And, mm-hmm. you know, does that stop with airplanes or were there any early pilot reports of dragons? Wouldn't that be interesting? <laughs> right. I, I mean, I seem to remember some time ago that somebody somewhere, I mean, don't quote me on this, but I, I remember it sliding across my desk probably 10 years ago that some man was photographing very strange serpent-like objects in the sky, whether anything ever, I guess nothing ever really came of it or we'd know about it. But, I mean, again, when you look in the back of the book, there's an entire section, and I'm just leafing through it now to to find what I'm, because this kind of answered your question regarding dragons. Well, he Uh, says um, that um, a lot of that stuff could have been misidentified tornadoes, right? Right, right, Um, right. But obviously, I, I was assuming that he wasn't talking about the cases that he included in the book. Right, right. That's the, I mean, there's a, there's a big section in the back called Sources and Methods where they go through what made the cut and what did not. And probably for every 10, only one made the cut. So that's how discerning they were with this book. And when you read it, you can certainly tell that. I mean, a lot of these things are very compelling and and frankly when you, you know, there are there are graphs in the back that show things such as the frequency and as a function of the time of the day in hours from 1am to midnight and uh and they give you a chart of the frequency of cases is within uh, a duration of time it it's really thorough and also broken down into ge- geographical status so it's a great book and i think he's right i think um, you know, in the back of the book, they're talking about we hope that people will use this model on a larger scale and go further with this. And I, I really hope that they do. It's certainly got me interested in looking farther back than you know our typical modern age of ufology, which seems to be, well, the pool seems to have been pissed in uh, a little too much, and this seems a little bit better. It seems to be a, a little more stringent and a little more distant, and. Uh, and yes, you could you could apply any number of celestial events to some of this stuff in the book, if it weren't for if it weren't for the the descriptions of what the people saw in such detail. Um, that's the part that kind of uh, of swayed me over from uh, from looking at these very old cases as opposed to our modern age of this. Well, also, I, I think. Uh, it's impressive, not just the caliber of person in society who's spotting some of these things mm-hmm. and reporting them. But, um, you know, I didn't, when you realize the politics of 
the times, as, as he explains, where, you know, it's somebody's duty to record everything that happens in the sky because any little thing out of the ordinary could be taken as a sign. Right. Um, so, you know, recording these things and being precise and accurate was an important uh, function, you know, of the political system even. Yeah. In a way yeah. that it isn't today. So I, I find that fascinating. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. I I had wanted to ask him more about uh, about George Hansen's work. You know, was he familiar with it, and and how did he figure? Well, you that? said why isn't a good question, and he chuckled and agreed. So yeah, <laughs> probably yeah. recognize that one. Yeah, I mean, I would like to have known. Like, did he find accounts of completely anti-structural events? I mean, certainly there are battles and wars, and certainly those are are awash in that sort of. Uh, out of routine, of course, and uh, and stress and all of that. Um, that's certainly in there, and certainly, you know, being executed on a beach. Uh, that's certainly a stressful time. But was there any marginal figures that came up time and time again of reporting events that may have coincided or complemented other cases that were a little bit more um, solid, if you want to use that word? I'd be real curious about that. Well, Jeff, I'm going to uh, go lay down and take in what just happened because this was, uh, like I said, this is my my final dream interview of of people that I've not interviewed before. Um, yeah, and it happened. <laughs> Were you nervous? Uh, you know what? I was a little nervous, and you and I, I, I was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you and I actually did something that we I think maybe have done once before, if that, which mm-hmm. is write down our questions beforehand and actually like <laughs> coordinate this. I mean, usually everything yeah. is off the top of our heads and this time uh, we planned it out because we didn't want to appear like the very morons that, that I spoke about earlier. So, um, uh, Yeah. I mean, and I think, I think what was, uh, I mean, I want to thank everybody who did the readings of the, the little synopsis of the book, yes, uh, which I think was invaluable for kind of separating our dialogue with uh, Dr. Valet. Um, with the actual account, and uh, and so many thanks to them for really making this a a, a wonderful sounding show. Um, so I think that that really kind of set a mark for us to kind of uh, well keep striving for. <laughs> yeah. But I was I was exceptionally nervous. I mean i I've been reading this book feverishly for the past you know three days or so, and uh, and just getting prepped for this and. Uh, and it's worth it, guys. Go out and get it. Wonders in the Sky, Jacques Vallée and Chris Albeck in stores everywhere. Until next week, where our guest will be, my other dream interview of all time, of course, <laughs> Whitley Strieber, my favorite author on the planet. Whitley Strieber returns. Next week, we will see you then. Bye-bye. Once again, Jeff and I would love to thank the Peritopia players, as we call them, who are... Voices in Ufology who came out to say welcome back, Jacques, in appreciation. Uh, in order of appearance, they are Carol Rainey, Emma Woods, Bill Burns, Tim Banal, Deb Cobble, Liz Mahon, Nancy Burns, and Rosebud Pettit. We thank you all for participating in this. It really means a lot to us. And once again, thanks, Jacques Vallée, author of Wonders in the Sky. Wonders in the Sky.